0: Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Our focus this morning will begin at verse 16, although I will read 16 again to give us context. Really, it shouldn't be difficult for us to understand what was happening in the churches in Galatia. It happens today. I remember back to an internship I did quite some time ago now After my third year of college, my youth pastor growing up had taken a church in a little town outside of Pittsburgh and it was a steel town and it was a dying town. People were moving out, not moving in. And his church was an elderly congregation, probably of 50 people or so, that met very faithfully every week when he took the church. What he had noticed, though, is the church was very comfortable staying the way it was. They really didn't want to go venture out into the neighborhood to start inviting folks to come in because it would bring a certain level of discomfort. They lived different lives, they thought. The people that lived in the town aren't the same people that used to live in the town when they grew up, and they were just waiting out their time in the church. And so when my pastor got there, he began to start visiting, walking around the neighborhood and knocking on doors and trying to start ministries that would uh, bring people in, newer people uh, from that area or people who had seen the church for years but never been invited. Then he called me just two summers after he had gotten there and he sent me out to do the same thing and we began ministries with the youth and families would come and we started to notice a certain murmuring that happened among the, the older people of the church who did not like the fact that people were coming who dressed differently than them. That was actually what I heard being spoken and Some of the people smoked, and some of the people did this, and some of the people did that. And you heard this kind of sense of almost bitterness from the people who liked it the way it was to have these folks come in and not have to change anything they did. Now, it's not to say that over time and discipleship decisions might be made and their life would look differently, but they were picking things that were not biblical wrongs necessarily, and they were judging them for them, and they were saying, hey, if they're going to come to be part of our church, they need to start doing this and not do that. That's exactly what happened to Galatia. that's why we have this book continually repeating over and over again the same message. You see, the Jews should have seen the inclusion of the Gentiles as part of God's gospel plan. That's what he told Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. Through you all the nations will be blessed. And they should have looked forward to the time where the gospel of grace that saved them, by faith looking to the Redeemer, would be the same gospel that would save people from all tribes and tongues. Instead, when the Jews saw the Gentiles start coming in, and they didn't have to go through the same rites and rituals, live the same under the same cultural trappings, it bothered them. They said, they can't come in here that easily. And so Paul writes to correct that kind of mindset, a mindset that nullifies the grace of God ultimately, that forgets the universal sin of man and all of us who sin in our need for grace, not by ethnic uh, our ethnic background, do we earn favor with God or by what we give or what class we're part of or whatever. It's by the grace of God through Christ, faith in him alone that saves us, whatever tribe or nation you're from. So Paul writes Galatians to correct the distortion of the gospel that really was no gospel at all, adding works. Now we pick up with this wonderful statement in verse 16 of Galatians 2 of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. Then we proceed to verses 17 through 21, which only holds in it the very purpose statement for our lives. Hear now God's word, Galatians 2, starting at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law... And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for this great statement of purpose for our lives. Lord Jesus, you loved us, you gave your life for us. Pray that our life would start to mirror your values, your purpose. What you were doing here on earth would be manifested through your people. Give us new encouragement this morning as we see how we are alive through union with you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What is it to be alive? That's a good question, and actually people debate it. If you would look up what it is to be alive... Scientists or, in particular, biologists might say uh, there are seven signs of life. They would say that a living thing has to be highly organized, complex structure. Living things maintain a chemical composition that is quite different from their surroundings. Uh, they would say living things have the capacity to take in, transform, and use energy from the environment. Uh, to be a living thing, biologists might tell you that uh, they have that thing has to be able to respond to stimuli. Uh, That thing has to have the capacity to reproduce itself. Uh, It has to grow and develop. And living things are well-suited for their environment, they would tell you. That's what the scientific definition, or at least the workings of a definition for what is alive, says. But you know and I know that there are many people who are walking around that fit this description that are dead in their life. They're dead. And we know that Paul tells us that before Christ, all of us were dead in one sense says in Ephesians that we were dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive together with Christ. He says to the Colossians, you were dead in your trespasses. God made alive together with him, us, having forgiven all our trespasses. And here in Galatians 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how many times life or living is referred to here? True life, really being alive, only happens in Christ. And we get this message so clearly from Paul as he writes to us about what the gospel does, what faith in Christ does in breathing new life into us, giving us a new identity, a new purpose, Galatians is profoundly foundational to a correct understanding of our redemption, our salvation, our spiritual life. But Galatians is also a guiding purpose statement, especially in this verse, for the lives we live. That's something every one of us, Christians included, are constantly striving for. Why are we living? Why don't I feel alive? Why is life difficult? Why am I discontent? Why is there discomfort? And it's usually related to an understanding of where your life is hidden. Is it hidden itself? in the approval of others or the hidden Christ in his purposes our life and purpose is wrapped up in Christ to whom we have been united by faith when you when we are united to Christ by faith we are referring to a legal recognition that goes on you're given new life simultaneously to being given this new life you're given faith faith that grasps Christ at the same time, you're justified, declared as righteous. It's a legal act that God makes on our behalf through Christ. We're adopted as sons and daughters. We are placed then in legal union with Christ. So as God looks upon us, he sees his son and his son's merit, and that's the basis for his acceptance of us. Not your works or your merit, the works and merit of Christ instead, to whom you are in union because of what God has done. The saving act of God. The riches of Christ become our riches. The standing of Christ as accepted by God becomes our legal standing. The power that raised Jesus from the dead becomes the same power that works in your life. Our purpose, our goal, our life is wrapped up in Christ. And I would just submit to you that if you're feeling discomfort or there's confusion, discontentment, it's almost always related to a misunderstanding. For Christians, those who claim to know Christ... It's almost always related to a misunderstanding of what your real life purpose is for. And it's wrapped up in Christ. It will look different for each of you in how you live it out. But it ultimately has the same unifying understanding that we are to live in Christ. Through Christ. According to Christ. With Christ. By Christ. This is what we see in Paul's writing in the Old Testament as well. Looking forward to the Redeemer and what he would give. First, though, let's look at the text, and we see it build up in verse 17, a very difficult verse to interpret. We see that life apart from Christ is ultimately driven by a futile faith in ourself and our deeds. And when we have seen this and spoken of this before, but look at what Paul says, remembering again verse 16 in the statement on justification by faith alone. But this verse 17 has garnered much discussion. It says, but if in our endeavor to be justified by Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now, verse 17 has caused commentators to wax uh, poetic and often about what this means. I think the best way to understand this is in its larger context where you recall that Peter has fallen into the trap of accepting what the Judaizers have done, adding circumcision, adding works of the law to be accepted by God. Peter himself has fallen into this. Even Barnabas is referred to as fallen prey to this. And so what it seems that Paul is saying in this verse 17, that if we're speaking of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, but you're going to call us sinners too because we're not doing these other things. Is Christ then a servant of sin? So if you're going to say that, that we, the apostles who've come here with this gospel message, and you're saying that because we won't agree with you on these outward trappings or things or rites or rituals or acts of obedience, you're going to say we're sinners because we have not done these? Well, is Christ then a sinner? I believe that's what Paul is saying in essence. Then he says in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So in verse 18 he's saying, Why would I rebuild what I just spent my converted life trying to tear down? The message of works. The idea that you could be right with God through works. I've been trying to tear that down. Why would I now build it back up by saying you have to do all these things the Judaizers are saying you have to do? It would just tear down the very gospel that I've been trying to teach and preach. So why would I rebuild that? I proved myself to be a transgressor in that instance. That is, he would have committed a real sin if he had added to the gospel of grace works. I believe that is what is being spoken of here in verse 17 and verse 18. Now let's look at those verses even a bit more closely. It says in verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul and the apostles worked diligently to teach that we could not add to what Christ had done on the cross. There is an extreme futility in trying to add to Christ's merit. And we do it every time we try to act or obey in a way that makes God love us more or accept us more. That's simply adding to what Christ has done, as if to say... That he has not done enough to make us God, make God love us supremely. In this way, life apart from Christ is driven by a futile faith in ourselves. Trust in our deeds tears down then the gospel of God's grace. Paul speaks of having torn down legalism when he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down. Uh, Using the same language, think of it this way, that as we trust in what we do to make God love us more, accept us, We are really actually tearing down the gospel, the good news of God's grace. Look back to verse 16 in our text, just before uh, verse 17, the focus of today. Last week we studied verse 16. Look what it says to be reminded. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In three different ways, Paul says that we cannot be made right with God by what we do. It's by faith in Christ and what he has done. Being declared righteous before God is an act of God's free grace. Not something we've earned by obedience. And now look at what he says in this light in verse 21 of the passage before us. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The idea that we can earn favor or merit or gain God's approval by obeying the law actually works, it says, to nullify the grace of God. I remember when we bought our van, we had an opportunity to buy this plan where you would get lifetime tires on it. Maybe some of you have that. Well, in order for you to Cash in on that warranty. You have to come in every so thousand many miles. I don't know. Remember how many it is? Maybe ten, maybe twelve, and have them rotated. And you had to have those tires rotated there. Yeah, you couldn't get them done somewhere else. You had to have them done there. Now, if you didn't do that, you effectively voided the warranty you had. Now, if you stayed in the warranty, that is, you continued to take your vehicle to have it maintenance there. Your warranty stood, and you continue to get new tires throughout the rest of your like with the car. But just one time, getting it to rotate somewhere else, doing it some other different way would take you out of warranty. There's a sense in which, when we're in Christ, we're saying we believe that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. When we add to that various other things, whatever it may be, as a basis for God's acceptance, we are adding to what God has said is the way. And we are effectively taking ourselves out of the umbrella of God's grace And we're venturing out into our own merit saying it's worth it. It's worthy. It should be viewed by God as acceptable. And his acceptance of us should be based on what we have done as well as what Christ has done. And that, Paul says at the beginning of this book, not even the gospel. We should be cursed to preach such a thing, he says, in two different instances. Trust in our deeds tears down the gospel of grace. But I I do want to say something here that's important. The law itself can get a bad rap if we continually view it the way the Judaizers viewed it. But see, that's not the way the Bible teaches it. See, the law is actually a friend to those who are in Christ. It's a foe to those who are not in Christ. Uh, the, The law actually takes on a different perspective to us. The law meaning that which God has revealed as his commands throughout Scripture, not just under Moses. But certainly under Moses, that's what is in view here. Uh, That's perfect, according to David. In fact, David says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And please notice what Paul says in verse 19 very closely. He says, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Notice that Paul doesn't say that the law died. It's not what he says. He says that he died to the law. The law in no way is bad in its own, on its own. When viewed from the position of faith in Christ for salvation, the law becomes a clear reflection of the righteousness of God. It becomes a guidepost for our lives. It becomes a great help to us, perfecting us, sanctifying us. We're not following it to gain merit with God. We're following it because God has accepted us, made us his children. Now, this is a reflection of what our father looks like And as we live according to the law, in that sense, it's our friend. It's good. It helps us. But my trust is not in it to save me. In that sense, it's our friend. But for the one who's striving against God, the law condemns. Because one of two things will happen. You'll try to follow it for salvation, to gain merit, and you'll become despairing or deluded. Like the rich young ruler, you'll think you've kept it all. Or you'll realize you can't, and you'll actually go to hate God. It's your foe in that sense. But for the one in Christ, even the one in Christ who is in sin, the law becomes a point of conviction that brings us back to the only one who can save us, Christ. So when Paul says, through the law, I died to the law, the law had the right effect on Paul. He couldn't keep it. And ultimately, he had to have Christ. The law is still the law. It's a reflection of God's moral character. It's who he is. But he died to confidence in his ability to keep the law and was made alive unto God. Confidence in the only one who actually kept it perfectly. The law is a friend or a foe, depending on your position. I didn't want to go further without noting how the law played its part in Paul's life and in ours as well. Remembering what David said, I love your law. Great peace, David writes, have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. See, the problem in Paul's day was the distorting of the law of God into something that had to be kept for salvation. The law had morphed into a monstrosity only vaguely resembling the content and the spirit of what Moses wrote. The law that Paul speaks of was a checklist of cultural rites and rituals that had to be kept for right standing. In that light, he's dead to confidence in keeping such rules. Now he's alive unto God because of faith in Christ. Verse 21, For I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ's death on the cross died for purpose, and so now keeping the law is no longer the means. Never was really the means, but it is not the means for which we would, ex- we would gauge our acceptance with God. Maybe you're asking yourself in light of all this, but I've been living to keep rules and please God in that way. I've been doing all the right things. God should bless me, shouldn't he? I'm beat down. I can't keep them all. Maybe you're saying I'm sick of all this. Life stinks for me. I can't please God anymore. Can't please anybody for that matter. Why am I not happy? I'm working hard at everything, yet I'm not happy. I don't like living, you might say. I'm alive, but I'm not really alive. For you, dear friend, brother, sister, look at the text in verse 20. We we see here that life in Christ is driven by our union with him, by faith in his deeds on our behalf. Not our deeds, but his deeds. What he has done. Not what we have done. Verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's unpack this wonderful verse, this purpose verse for our lives. First, we see that the work of Christ on the cross was our work. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul writes this. We can say this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not that we have experienced the crucifixion in actuality like Jesus did, but we gain the benefit and the effect of the crucifixion by our legal union with Christ. So God substitutes Christ on the cross for us. So in this legal sense, we are on the cross in that sense. I am crucified with Christ. When sins were put up on Jesus and God's wrath was poured out upon it, That was God's wrath being poured out upon our sin. We're crucified with him. When he went to the cross, he did so on our behalf, taking our sins, all of our sins. But we see also that the resurrection of Christ has given us life with him. Verse 20, the second portion, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The benefit of having our sins applied to Christ and us receiving his righteousness, in effect, legally being crucified with Christ, is that we are now in union with him and what happens to Christ and what benefits Christ has, they're given to us and we're raised together with him. It's no longer I who live. I've been crucified. But what happened to the one who's crucified, the worthy sacrifice? He was raised again by God. We were not raised because of our righteousness. We were raised because of his righteousness. And now I no longer live. It's who I once was. I live in Christ. I'm in Christ now. Legally in Christ before God. Listen, there's a lot of good feelings that can come with being born again. No doubt. But our feelings have to be rooted in a reality. And the reality is the legal union we have with Christ by God's will. That should prompt whatever feelings we have about our life. That legally before God, He views us as He views His Son. So I am crucified with Him, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So the discomfort we feel is often, for the believer, for the true believer, it's faith in Christ alone. The discomfort we feel is almost always tied to a lack of understanding or grasping. That it is Christ who lives in us. And he loves you too much to try to change the gospel into serving and loving yourself. And so he'll bring loving discomfort and discipline into our lives because it is no longer you who live. It is Christ who lives in you. And Christ living in you won't match with loving other idols. And all of us struggle with it. And so there may be discomfort. Maybe this is God calling you. To recognize your life is hidden with Christ and God now. It's the same power that raised Jesus that is working in you. His life, Christ's life and purpose, becomes our life and purpose when we are raised together with Him. We also see, thirdly, though, from this verse 20, that our lives are no longer our own, but are united with Christ. Following the same theme we see in the uh, middle section of the verse, And the life I now live, speaking of being alive, the life I now live in the flesh, meaning here on earth, with our our body and our soul united together, living according to God's will, I live by faith in the Son of God. So my very living comes from faith in Christ and who Christ is and what He has done. Uh, That is the purpose, that is the driving force behind what I do, the decisions I make, and when I choose against those things, I struggle because it's not me anymore. It's tough kicking against the goes. In modern vernacular, it's sort of like when you're playing a video game, like I'm sometimes prompted to do, play with my sons. They have one game in particular they like to play because they found they could beat me often in it. It's Mario Karts. And in Mario Karts, for those who don't care, I'm sorry for you, but for those who don't care, It's a game where you get on a little cart and you drive around this track and you have fun knocking each other off the track and throwing different stuff at each other. It's great fun. And you're going on this track, but it's fast. And over the years, it's developed. And as I get older, I'm not keeping up with the stuff and the stimuli and what it takes to get around the track. And my kids know this. That's why they want to play with me, because it's fun to beat me. And so we move around. At the end, it tells you what place you finished. And after several heats, they can really, you know, Jordan, who's a little, can really feel good about, you know, knocking Daddy off the track. And it's great fun. But one of the things that's difficult, and I don't mind if I'm going all right on the track and things are progressing, I can live with losing to them. It's the problem when I get disoriented and I find myself going in a direction and people are passing me and this little thing floats down with an arrow that points, basically you're going in the wrong direction and the arrow points back and I'm traveling along and I can't figure it out and I hear one of the boys say, Daddy, you're going the wrong way and you're going the wrong way and this arrow keeps flashing, pointing at you to turn around and you can't get it turned around. I think a lot of the discomfort that we feel in our lives, just God's flashing the arrow at us. He's saying, you're going the wrong way. This is not the way you're designed to go. This is not the way you can go to progress. But you keep going and you keep trying to go against the arrow. It keeps flashing. But you keep ignoring it like it's not there. You're saying You've been crucified with Christ. Your life is now hidden in him. This is the way you now go in light of that. And if you don't go this way, I'm going to hold up the arrow. I'm going to hold up the flag. I'm going to bring things to show you that you've got to go the other way. I won't stop loving you more. I won't stop caring for you. My sense for you will not lessen. You're my child, God says. But I've got to bring something here to turn you around because you're going the wrong way. Our life is united with Christ now. That power that raised Christ from the dead is working in our lives. And now we go in a direction that is new. Because the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, it's a whole new world view. Uh, The center of our universe is changed. And yes, it will rub against things that you come across in your life today. Because the world at large doesn't have this shift, this paradigm from the worship of self to the worship of Christ. It happens in the church and among God's people, and then through the people of God. God uses you and uses your influence and your testimony to change the paradigm for many, many others. That's how he does it. We're not our own anymore. We're united together with God through Christ. This is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Later in the same book he says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Don't become slaves of men. Finally, I would say to you from this text, we can see that our ultimate motivation to live for God actually is because of His love and grace to us. What I have said is true legally. But there is a phrase in this verse that reaches out and grabs us personally. Beyond the legal, doctrinal, theological reality that we have to know that we are crucified with Christ, He sees us in legal union with His Son. There is a final phrase that Changes this for me as I read it. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And look at this last phrase. Please see it. This is not a cold, legal, calculated decision God makes. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, he had to love me before I was lovable. Because that's all I was before I was in Christ. Yet he loved me, he loved you, and gave himself for you. So yes, there's a legal reality, but it's not just that cold. There's a personal application because He loves you, and that's why He did what He did. Understanding the profound doctrinal reality of our position in Christ is essential for growth in Christ. The legal aspect of our union with Christ is both encouraging and enlightening as we think of it, and we contemplate it, we meditate upon it. Still, though, the personal reality of what God has done for us out of love should be what compels you. That's what motivates us. That's what constrains us to obey. Don't hear ever that I'm saying we ought not to obey. What I'm saying is that obedience ought to come from the love of God shown to us in Christ. His complete acceptance of us in Christ. That's why we obey. And if someone's not obeying, that's a good indication, according to James, that they don't actually have real faith in Christ. That's what's being said. That's the fruit of the gospel. The act of redemption, purchasing our salvation. It's not a cold legal action. The act of saving us, paying for us. This was done out of love for you. So why do we live the way we do then? He loves us so much. Why does He do this? Have you ever not loved your child because of the sin they committed? No, you're frustrated with them. Sometimes you love them more because you feel for the road they're walking. What a verse. I want to close with it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed with your great love for us. Father, we are underwhelmed with our ability to try to heap on works as if you would love us more. Lord God, thank you for sending Christ, our perfect sacrifice. Lord, give us a new sense today of our life being hidden with Christ, in Christ, by Christ, through Christ. Lord, compel us to obey you. Because you loved us. You love us. And you have given Christ for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us respond together by turning to 348. Let's stand as we sing verses 1 through 3 of Jesus with thy church abide.